0: Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a
1: short message about our ministry.
0: I'm here with uh, Brent Powell and we're doing part two of our uh, podcast on the uh, liturgists and up on the various podcasts, sort of on, uh, I think, a kind of uh, group of Uh, people that have come through evangelicalism and have entered into, uh, uh, and what Brett is saying, there are elements on the order of Gnosticism. Brett, can you kind of sum up where we've been and where you think we need to go?
1: Yeah, so in our last discussion I was attempting to sort of survey the the interesting role that gender has played and is playing in Gnostic varieties, uh, Gnostic varieties of Christianity so it, you know, if I could sum up the Gnostic view and I think maybe this might be a little bit of a modern way of looking at it but if I could sum up the Gnostic view of gender which is where our discussion was mostly dealing with when we were talking about the liturgist, but if I could sum that up I'd say the role of gender is just sort of one of metaphor maybe one of a a category which is virtually empty of reality but which essentially fulfills a narrative and so this narrative is something that is the narrative that it's fulfilling is that something is integrally wrong with the structure of reality and so something like gender becomes just an empty category and and it really becomes a means of altering and, and upending hierarchies, I guess which is sort of alluded to in ancient Gnosticism with the way they conceptualize God through hierarchies and uh, they use something like gender to upend the hierarchies that are maintaining the, the faulty structure of reality so when I word it that way it kind of sounds, I feel like I'm maybe making an anachronistic projection uh, maybe of postmodernism onto 2nd century Gnosticism which wouldn't be quite Right, but be that as it may, that's sort of my working theory based on just some very specific points of comparison that I found just very strange between what's going on in 2nd century Gnosticism and what you will find in the discussions that are taking place among Uh post-evangelical sorts of people.
0: Let me see if I can sum it up accurately and correct me here because you've studied this much more than I have. And that is that in the Nag Hammadi texts, that what they, we really don't know a whole lot about the, what the Gnostics might have believed, but we have some idea. And one is that, uh, Sophia then in some way was, uh, the feminine aspect to the fullness of the plural of God. And Sophia then is In some way uh, rejected by uh, the ultimate pleroma or ultimate God, and there is a secondary God then, masculine. I am assuming that is the creator, and Sophia is is in some way though restored to, to the pleroma. There are aspects of Sophia. And I guess by Sophia wisdom that in some way uh, the emanations from God that in some way they still remain but in no way part of the material reality. Material reality, creation is evil and the God who did this was violent and evil. Is that is that about where am I hitting it? Yes. Really
1: yeah, so God is just merely conceptualized and 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 he's conceptualized through all the. I say he but I'm just using a word for reference here but God is conceptualized through all of these sort of um, idealisms so it's just a platonic noetic heaven basically that it's just a continuance of, of Platonism basically and projecting it and using using Christian Teaching or Christian stories from the gospel, or you know, ancient Hebrew uh, stories, just to sort of contextualize what you know their actual beliefs, it just kind of fleshes out their beliefs, I guess. And and so, it's all really just a narrative that that fits their philosophy.
0: And you're finding then a parallel in uh the liturgist podcast or at least a particular podcast
1: yeah just a particular one um yeah which was uh the episode a few months ago God our mother which so what they did was went through and discussed the the harms of using God our father on the level of metaphor and Without objecting to that necessarily, I just wanted to, through this discussion, bring up why God our Father is also a very important concept, especially in as much as it's integral to the the incarnation uh, story, if you want to call it, or the incarnational event in which Christ, uh, the Son of God, becomes incarnate, and, and his relationship in particular to God the Father. So that's where I think I was sort of leaving off. I, I had made a my consideration of why and how we should take gender seriously, just coming at it theologically, of course, is my consideration of it is twofold. And what I have as a as an outcome in mind is is an incarnational model of gender. I think that the incarnation being the word of God is it should be our source for for how we understand the world and of course how we interact within the world and, and so that's where i was sort of
0: leaving off last week i guess so i I think that uh you have you've uh i'm curious because you you've actually messaged me here you're you're playing off a little bit of some of the stuff I've said, but also wanting to critique uh some of it. I'm very curious then. Take us there, uh uh and I think you're referencing uh one of the things that I've talked about is first John and maybe just the, the Johannine literature, but it it's always seemed to me that he's dealing with something very much like you know, it is a proto gnosticism. Uh so tell tell me your take on that.
1: Well, um uh, let me work my way
0: there first. Okay. I
1: want to go through a few things. Um, I, I want to just sort of talk about my, the incarnational model of gender here just a little bit. Um, and I talked about a little bit last week, but I wanted to unpack my first consideration here, which is we look to the incarnation for this model. Why we should look to the incarnation for our model of gender uh, and that's because the incarnation is the word of God, as John describes it in his prologue, and and of course even in the gospel, I think that John is interacting with some proto-Gnostic ideas. So the incarnation is the word of God in the beginning. You know that signifies to us that somehow what's going on in the sequence of events uh, is underlying existence, and um, you know the incarnation isn't just a wasn't just a singular event you know it was a series of events which involved a variety of actors that were male and female and it all was in relation to jesus but you know the incarnation of christ it encompasses everything from the the faith of jesus mother on through to the ascension of jesus to the father and, and everything and everyone in between is sort of a, an actor i guess you could say uh, they have a part in what's going on in this sequence of events so this incarnation sequence it underlies our existence and how males and females participated in it you know that's not a feature of it that should be undermined and again i i think i mentioned last week that how great your article was on john's gospel that brought out how the feminine and the male um, played off of one another as john wrote his gospel and you know, how well that works. And it's all its all moving towards sort of a, a, a soteriological view of male and female. Um, it's looking in terms of salvation, you know, not in terms of how male and female might be used to play off against each other. Um, you know, certainly I think that there are, are aspects of the male that John brings out that are you know that they're that they're not they're not acting justly, but I think that that's where Jesus sort of compensates. Mm-hmm. And as I get to the part on First John, I think it's that relationship between Jesus and God as Father. And as I get to First John chapter two, I think that'll come out. But it's that relationship between Jesus and God as Father that sort of Redeems masculinity in John. So,
0: is there, let me say something. I don't mean to draw you off track here, but I'm trying to build on what you're saying. And that is that by talking about an incarnational model, that whereas with the Gnostics or with the, the Neo Gnostics, maybe that we have around us, I, you know, I just, it seems like Gnosticism is always the fallback. That what you get then is not an affirmation of the reality of the created order or of the reality of, of gender but there is always the move to in some way uh, move beyond that and is your point then uh, that there in the incarnation is a full affirmation of genderedness as bearing the image of God yes yes and
1: it's actual re, it's actual place within reality and you know? it's its actual function also i think within the created order and that's really my second part of this twofold thing that i wanted to present is that we should take into consideration gender because of this idea of Christ as creator and you know from very early on it's a strange idea but the idea that that Christ was the creator came about and And you find it really through most of the texts, either insinuated or stated explicitly um, by Paul in 1 Corinthians. I think he says all things were through Jesus, through whom all things come and through whom we live. Um, We have Hebrews talking about the Son through whom the ages were made. The writer of Colossians states in him all things were created in the heavens and the earth. And then, of course, John in his prologue talks about the word being uh, that all things were made through him. and you know a bit of a problem here is I think that by and large when we talk about the Jesus agency of creation that we usually I sense and part of this is probably because as a Catholic going to mass every Sunday I confess, you know we confess or the Nicene Creed, we say I believe. And sometimes I feel like, when we think about the Christ agency of creation, we take it sort of as just a propositional truth to be confessed and to be believed, and it really remains on that level. So in the creed we say, "I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father, etc., etc." And then we get through whom all things were made. And so, uh, what happens when we only take Christ's, creative agency on the level of a, a faith affirmation you know what happens when it's only on that level as like an event uh, you know it's like a theological version of the big Bang, I guess that we just say we believe and and I think what happens is we sort of miss the dynamic effect that Jesus resurrection impressed upon the witnesses the apostles you know for them seeing Jesus as the Messiah and then to watch him suffer and then to die. And then to come out the other side of the grave impressed upon them in such a strange way that
0: Jesus was the creator, Mm -hmm. you know? And that's the language Paul and uh, the writer of Hebrews, they'll all always, those two things seem to go together. And I guess it just goes together in a Hebraic Hebrew mind. The one who creates from nothing raises from the dead and the one who has been raised from the dead is the one who, in other words, the two things are equated.
1: Yeah, it, and it may just have been as simple as this is the guy who overcame the hierarchical authorities, this is the one who overcame suffering, and this is the one who even has the upper hand on death and and has the upper hand on the grave, and so I don't know quite how that deduction follows, but Suddenly, we have this idea that he obviously has a handle on all things, and I mean, rising from the dead is <laughs> is a pretty significant thing. So, I've just always been very interested on the just the psychological effect that the resurrection must have had upon people for them to to move to something so significant as that, and so uh, you know, Jesus. The thing is, Jesus played by all the rules, and he played by the rules of men, in a sense. He played by the rules of the age, and he even played by the rules of God. And All along the way, he's denouncing evil where he sees it. He's healing, he's feeding, and he's sustaining people's lives in various ways. And he's dining with the lowest of the low people, the most socially frustrated people. But he's doing all that very courageously. And he's doing it without ever resenting the structure of reality or the structure of being, I guess. You know, he's never using he's never using power against power, you know, just to upend a system that was very much rigged against him, I guess you could say, you know. He's saying the rain falls on the righteous and the rain falls on the evil man all the same. And, and so, out of that, to suffer, to die, and to rise again, you know, I would say he has a hold on creation. And so, you know, I don't really want to get away from my point here, but with all that in mind, I kind of want to posit something here, which is kind of hard to articulate. But this designation of Christ as creator, in my mind, I believe at a very minimum, it just speaks to the connection and the correlation of the work of Christ and the work of creation. And That can sound like a very mundane point, I guess, but how that relates to this topic is that in this world in which female and male and sexuality emerged as which we can see on this side of modernity but in this world in which female and male emerged as advantageous biological features they were features which were life preserving they were resistant against death you know, they were specific features that that kept us from extinction, us and other species, I guess you could say. And uh, this world in which male and female emerge, uh, you know, we can, we can understand that world. You know, it can potentially be explained and, and described, you know, by science, but also I think just by empirical observation and stuff. But that world, what I'm trying to get at here is that world is not distinct or detached from the world in which the incarnation took hold, it's the very same world in which the incarnation took place. That this world, in which male and female emerged, is the setting of the incarnation, and, and, and it's the very same world that we credit as the work of Christ's hands. So, you know, what I'm saying is, much in the same way that gender participated in the incarnation, so too this world was sort of the fixed setting that allowed the incarnation sequence, the whole story and every event of it just to unfold. And so
0: let me see if I can, if I, I if I can lay this out, you know, J- uh, John Howard Yoder talks about how Howard was, writes his, his whole Templeton lectures are in, entitled with the grain of the universe. And that's sort of what you're describing is that, uh, you know, even the miracles of Christ, it's not, you know, in the, in the, uh, I think the you know the the fake miracles that you that you get in some of the Gnostic literature or second century literature, uh, or or even uh, you know miracles that are from Jesus' childhood, the miracles seem to be going over and against nature. They're kind, but what we see in the New Testament is that sort of with the grain of the universe. That the one you know, as C.S. Lewis has put it that when he turns water into wine, well, here is always the one who turns water into wine in and through the natural processes of grapes growing and fermenting. When he heals and when he, you know, that that it's not that he's acting over and against nature, but it's with the grain of the universe so that redemption itself is with the grain of the universe. That, uh, genderedness is not in some way undone and this may be you know the, the, I think part of what is taking place in a cosmic redemption is that it's not that genderedness is obliterated but in fact it's fulfilled it's completed
1: yeah I like that and because this is the biggest struggle for me and this is where it kind of relates to the the podcast that you guys put out the other day this um, it, it was mentioned in, in that podcast that theology is trying to you know you guys were talking about the, um, the analogy of being mm-hmm. you and Jonathan is that yeah, it? That
0: Jonathan was, a, Yeah,
1: um, you were talking about the analogy of being a, and it's mentioned that you know how theology I think maybe is trying to find its place but It was mentioned that theology has a better grasp of what it means to be human than does biology. Um, And I thought about that, and, and, you know, especially when it comes, I think your point there with John Howard Yoder was, that's a good point with the grain of the universe, because this is the struggle for me, is that in this era, you know, what relevance is theology going to have, or or a question or a statement that theology knows humanity better or is better at finding the relevance of humanity, what relevance is that going to have whenever biology provides a very, very full account of humanity? Because um, even something like altruism, which is, I think that's long been considered a very deeply religious notion. You know, that's where you you give up something of yourself for somebody else but but even uh, altruism is beginning to kind of have a be given a firm footing in biology I I don't know I don't know if you ever read Richard Dawkins or anybody like that (laughs) Uh, Richard Dawkins came uh, you know despite everything that I don't care for about him he, he talks about the selfish gene and and tries to give altruism a a pretty firm footing and i think he does in a logical sense gives altruism a pretty firm footing in genetics and that he can actually logically demonstrate that something like altruism can be naturally selected for or you have even in biology something called game theory where you know you can situationally show where altruism would be a preferred outcome even if it's at a cost to you so when we're talking about by, uh, theology being able to give a better description of humanity than, than biology, it, it's, it's sort of a struggle for me.
0: Uh, yeah, you know? as, you, as you say that, I would want to disagree with me too if I said it like that. I, 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 uh, I can't remember our conversation, uh, but I, I think we may have been referencing uh, radical orthodoxy and and what i would what i would hope we were saying is not that a, a theology isolated from biology or a theology in other words that i think the idea is that uh that theology is informed by biology theology is informed by the sciences it's informed by psych, you know all of the sciences all of the human endeavors so that it's not that theology is a realm apart from these things, uh, but that it taps into and, and it, it is an interpretive frame for entering in. I think the th- the uh, the thing that I can't remember what we we were talking about, but it may have been the idea. But nonetheless, you know, you as with a biology, you know, here you you have somebody like Richard Dawkins. Who I would agree, okay, maybe altruism is, is to be found or maybe, you know, this is the thing that people do imagining that uh, Darwinian gradualism uh, is in some way a end point explanation. And my point would be, well, no, that just because you found the the altruism in genetics or you found the explanation for the emergence of human beings, that's not the found, that's not an endpoint explanation of origin. And I would say the same thing in every area. And or just not just, I would say the same thing in philosophy. That hey, philosophically, you can talk about philosophy of language or you can talk about, you know, uh, various uh, philosophical endeavors. But philosophy, biology, science, mathematics, uh, none of these things are self-grounding. That is that uh, they, they are not in uh, I- inherently self-explanatory. And so your point about Christ is creator. Well, now here you have, in other words, it's not, Oh, here is this explanation over and against other explanations. <clears throat> you know, to say, Oh, it, that the world's created. That's not to say it's, we don't know how it was created, uh, so that I, that may have been the point we were making. But but maybe I'm fudging what I said. I don't know. I can't remember.
1: <laughs> well, it, it it's sort of a it's a difficult thing, and and I think that a lot of times, you know, theology sees God as an outside actor, as some, you know, at some level, or just that God is always either occasionally or uh, regularly is intervening at will by, you know, revelation or by acts of grace, Uh, even if it's cooperative acts of grace. Theology sees God as an outside actor, sort of impressing upon humanity a a certain mode of existence or things to be believed or, or ways to be followed. Um... You know, but and then you have materialism on the other hand, which is and not necessarily even atheistic materialism, but just a materialistic view of things, where we're deriving explanations for human activities and values just through biological observation. So sometimes I feel like theology is holding up unintelligible things over and against intelligible things.
0: Right, and, right.
1: You know. We only have, inte- you know, our, our, our intelligibility is, is it, it seems purely based off of the world that we live in, so, it, <laughs> and not that that's necessarily the case, but, you know, it's, sometimes it feels like that's all we have to go off of, and, and so, I, I, I don't know, that's, it's a difficult thing for me to resolve, but I, it was just something that, where I thought that that discussion sort of coincided with some of the questions that I had here. So I don't, I don't want to lose the main point here. But you know, began this discussion sort of as a consideration of gender within the context of the incarnation. But
0: what I'm really wondering
1: here is if this correlation of the incarnation and creation, you know, is signaling to us the value of the created order. And you sort of mentioned that with how Jesus did things with the grain. Of the universe, and so when we talk about male and female, back to the point, or masculinity and femininity, you know, we're not talking about empty categories or idea, platonic ideals, or eons as the Gnostics called them. You know, we're not talking about these ideals up in, in noetic heaven, but we're talking about something that uh, that actually has meaning. So, uh, and things that can be verified I guess that, that might be taking a modern understanding and projecting it back on, on what the apostles were actually saying but you know we can actually turn to the real world order and derive meaning from it you know maybe not an end though I guess
0: yeah and I and, and even as you're saying that I wouldn't want to limit theology in other words the the I, as I as I understand it, there is there is a, when I use the word foundation, I understand that's sort of a dangerous term that people are thinking of a modern, found, modernist foundationalism. But of course, in the New Testament, the image is that Christ, that Paul says that there is no foundation that has been laid other than Christ Jesus. And I, you know, I I certainly don't mean that to take that in some modernist sense, but I think that that is the case. That here is, in other words, the, the, here is the means of comprehending. And again, I'm not, I'm not trying to pit, you know, I think the whole, you know, pitting science against theology. I think that's a kind of misnomer. Um, but I think theology done rightly then um is is gives us a lens a way of reading and seeing what the grain of the universe is uh it certainly does not you know uh dictate the particulars or so
1: yeah and just to make one more point about biology you know which sort of dovetails off of what you just said there you know and even even though it's grasping at straws, you know, biology would, will tell us that to go back to the male and female discussion, that male and female arose as a symbiotic relationship. You know, it, it, we don't know how that sort of phenomenon emerges, but you know, the advantages of, of of sexual organisms over asexual organisms is pretty clear. I mean, when you think in terms of complexity and diversity and the ability to to interact uh, in this created order or just the ability to survive i mean sexuality is a, is a very 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 positive feature and so when we we have these teachings from the gnostics where male and female masculinity and femininity are being pitted against each other and, and i think this even goes into the into the liturgist podcast where these are two these are two real-world uh, features that are being pitted against each other when really they arose out of symbiosis. And, and I and I think that to give the liturgists the benefit of the doubt, I think that that's what they're aiming for. Um, I just, I, I, I question some of the ways that they were going about it, and again, it, it sort of sounded like you know, pretty Gnostic you know, when you compared it with uh, what Irenaeus was saying about the Gnostics, but so they're not dualistic metaphors. I guess it's the main thing. They're they're much more than that, and mm-hmm. and I think the incarnation gives gives us a really a really neat idea of of um, how that they have a role in human redemption.
0: And that's the the uh, you know the whole. I think a lot of these people are coming out of an evangelicalism or fundamentalism in which uh, patriarchy or you know complementarianism. There is a kind of oppressive uh, picture, and they're they're reacting to that. But of course, it's it's the same you know same problem that you get in any kind of it's not just you know in any kind of liberation theology, the theology seems to sometimes be thrown out of balance. That uh, oh well, we'll displace the oppressors, but by dis. Creating a new class, of, you know, by just shifting from male to female, and privileging the feminine, uh, it is—it's just the same problem of a different order, you know.
1: And when you look at the real world, I mean, some hi- their, nature establishes its own hierarchies sometimes, and uh, I'm not referring to the male-female, but uh, you can look in nature and see that, you know. Hierarchies sort of can be um, you know in animals and other species you see dominance hierarchies and that's sort of just the way that, that life moves on you know but some hierarchies are established by nature you know then you have some that are established by culture which you could say perhaps patriarchy uh, in humans is and, you know some hierarchies are good I guess and some of them are obviously bad and and I think a lot of people will find themselves on the wrong end of a lot of very rotten hierarchical structures, which is um, very obvious from, from a group like the liturgists. But um, I think the gospel and the life of Christ, and probably just theology specifically, should be speaking a lot less about this concern of turning the tables or reconstituting the system. Just more about, I don't know if this is a good word, I like to think about it in, uh, I think about the life of Christ as just persevering through them courageously um, and that brought me to something that you I was listening to a sermon of yours because um, I was reading through 1 John trying to pin down some thoughts about proto-gnosticism and one of the two things that I kind of found interesting was that John talked about he, he, he mentions two things that are antichrist, and one of them is to deny the Father and the Son, which kind of interestingly pertain to this, and also the denial of, of Jesus in the flesh, which also pertain to this. And So I, I, I thought that was a pretty interesting point. So I, I listened to a sermon of yours on 1 John chapter 2, and, and you talked about this idea of overcoming the world, which is what John brings up. And you talk about overcoming the world through belief. Uh, through obedience and through agape love and and uh, that this was our this was our proof mm. uh, and uh, I just wanted to read back to you one something that you actually said because I thought it fit in really well here oh my I wrote it down.
0: favorite person to hear quote <laughs>
1: <laughs> it really did pertain uh, you said John talks about overcoming the world the difference from a Gnostic notion of overcoming, I think, is in the identity of the world that is overcome. The Gnostics are saying that the real world creation is the one that is overcome, but the world overcome by Christ is the world constituted by darkness, by the devil, by human beings, by human society, by the ruling authorities, Herod, Pilate, religious rulers, along with the prejudices, hierarchies, and powers of That goes with all that. Jesus overcame that. The world the Gnostics would overcome is the material world. What is the human disease from which we all need to escape? Well, the Gnostic says, oh, it's your body. It's the law. It's the material reality of creation because Gnostic knowing entails refusal of the material realities of this world, including death. And you go on to sort of dismiss mystic ideas and and you speak on the historical reality of Christ and I just thought, you know, we're characterized by our our mode of, of existence. We should be characterized by our mode of living and not simply, we're not characterized by that in spite of reality, but in part because of re- the reality that's going on around us. It's It's incarnational. So we're not characterized by, you know, or given our value by our place within the ebb and flow of hierarchy and structure that's inevitably going to go on around us, but... I don't think it's prudent as Christians to think that it is our place just to come in and alter reality, but actually just to live faithfully and obediently and lovingly within uh, the reality, however we come into contact with it in our own lives. So,
0: but I think I think part of the problem is in identifying reality. So that you know, if you if you imagine that. I think, you know, the the recent political situation, uh, that some people just, you know, this was Jeff Sessions, maybe this is on my mind. He's saying, well, we have to separate these children out because this is the law, and the law is the law. So that I think for some people, they imagine that the hierarchical reality put into place by human beings is in other words, you can still refer to that as a reality, but of course, that's not God's reality. That's not the reality. That's not the created reality, the created order. And so I think that we often are caught up in a value system, uh, a hierarchical system, a value system that has been put upon us. You know, if, you're, if you've ever lived in another culture. You feel this very strongly when I lived in Japan. Well, here is a whole completely uh, different way of valuing and looking at people, and uh, and you realize that that this human construct uh, is infinitely, in other words, you can you can it's kind of created whole cloth uh I I and that's not even that statement's not entirely true because in some way we're always grounded in God's created order that it has to deal with that but I think for for many people and I think this is the gnostics I think unfortunately this is the the when people the lit, lit, liturgists the idea that that podcast and the the idea that it, it in some way uh to confuse these two things. And so I think we need to penetrate and recognize, yeah, in some way we're subordinate to the government, you know, in some way, but but to imagine that that is definitive, to imagine that that is, you know, uh, oh, well, I'm an American or I'm Japanese or, you know, or I, you know whatever it is, that it, it, to be absorbed by that, I think is the great danger. And of course, that's what the New Testament is written over and against. That's what John and Paul, I think that's what they're written over against. They're they're willing to be subordinate to a degree, but they're not willing to be obedient. And that's the thing that a Jeff Session misses. You know, he says, oh, well, we have to, you have to obey the law. No, that's not what Paul's saying. He's saying, yeah, well, that, you know, we need to be subordinate. But Jesus was not obedient. If he was obedient, he would have never broken the seal on the tomb that the Romans put there. Paul is not obedient. If he were obedient, they wouldn't have beheaded him. And so in some in in some way we need to penetrate the false the darkness And get at what is really real, and I think that's uh, that's what Christianity does for us. A Christianity that has not been co-opted, unfortunately, in many cases it has, uh, by the hierarchies of, you know, the orders of 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 men.
1: Yeah, yeah, I I think that's a good point. not co-opting is yeah that's really the main idea here I think it, it's it's well, I think maybe this the last thing I would say about it is that these hierarchies you know however they're coming at you you know and, it, and it, sometimes it's the natural hierarchies that are the problem um, because and I'm just using hierarchy kind of in a general sense of um, Oh, a tendency towards good, uh, or a tendency towards more, and a tendency towards less—just sort of as a generic term. So that I mean, in the same way, it can apply biologically. But you can have, you know, your health or anything else, you know, turned against you. You know, life can be a real struggle for you on a biological level. Life can be a real struggle for you um, because of man-made hierarchies, or because the culture is set against you, and. I think maybe just the overall point I would say is that that's the sort of setting within which Christ did his work and that's the sort of, that gave Christ the setting to overcome Um, it was like, it was the backdrop of of what he of of it was the backdrop for him to, to accomplish his work and I don't know if that really makes sense, but
0: <laughs> he's overcoming the principalities in power. So when he has a conversation with Nicodemus or he has a conversation with the woman at the well, what he's what he's attempting to do is always. In other words, they are people that are shaped. Unfortunately, Nicodemus may be more steeped and incapable of of breaking free. Of the value system of being a part of the Sanhedrin, of being a Pharisee, of being, you know, that here is this, that. And so when Jesus says a simple thing like you must be born again, you can't imagine the breaking apart of his reality or or of his world to embrace another world. Now, you know, it's interesting, the Samaritan woman easily pictures that because her world doesn't, it's not one that she's clinging to. And so I think that's the, the, the point. That's why the poor, the outcast, the persecuted, the oppressed, they're more likely to, to hear this message as good news because they the, the system that has been put upon them, thrust upon them, there's redemption from it in Christ uh, that we need not then be defined, you know, uh, by the systems of this world, and that, at some level, that may sound true. You know, there was there a, a recent Netflix uh, documentary was on. Uh, there was this group of uh, in uh, Afghanistan. The documentary is Kill Team, and and it's a group of guys the, that a sergeant comes in, and he just likes killing people. Uh, it it doesn't have to be any reason. And so they stage, you know, these, the deaths of various Afghani citizens. They'll just kill them and then drop a gun or something and make it look like they'd struggled. Well, that, that he takes over this unit of people and there's this one poor kid that really doesn't want to do this. He doesn't like killing people, but of course he gets sucked up into it. Now that's, that is a, a kind of, Uh, maybe a dark illustration of how we're always sucked up into, that the powers are always working upon us. And the way that they work upon us will inevitably be uh, that we'll get our kicks, we'll find our pleasure, we'll uh, gain our value according to things that in the end uh, are not of any enduring significance. Nope, that's good. I like that. Did we hit your your main points here?
1: Yeah, it's that's a that's what I wanted to say, and there were some questions that I kind of wanted to run by you, and, and uh, you know, discussion's good for doing that. So,
0: I think the uh, the the gender issue is is just key to all of this, and I think that you know this is the that, that in a sense though we may we may. Put this in, you know. In Paul, when he talks about uh, the the genders, you know that that I that he gave them over to lust. But actually, what precedes that? What precedes the the sexual perversion? And I'm using the word perversion in a psychoanalytic sense. What precedes that is an idolatrous perversion, a turning from God. That is the the genders are not going to be sorted out in a cosmos, in a closed cosmic system. But neither is anything else. In other words, that gender is the first place that we'll turn for a dualism. Because in a sense, it is that uh, real created thing. It may be the, a, a reality that you know most obviously presents itself and if you do not have something that transcends this world, the creator, and that's why I think your point about Jesus as creator is key here, uh, because that's put, that puts gender, it doesn't in some way displace gender, but it allows gender to continue to have its significance in the created order uh, and is not in any way undone. Uh, by redemption, so
1: essentially, you would say sexuality is sort of the first place that other that a deeper issue will deeper issue will exhibit itself. That's sort of the
0: that's my the go-to place. Yeah, that would be my reading of of uh, the early cha- chapters of Genesis, but it's also just. But in our fallenness, well, the primary thing about it is, us is that we're male and female. And so we're always fallen, fallen rather, in our, in our, in our genderedness. It always expresses itself sexually. Now, that may be a, a very strong statement. But um, in some way, our, our, our fallenness gets taken up in this primary fact about us. And I'm not saying how, or how that, I'm just saying it does. It seems that way, for sure. Brett, this has been a wonderful conversation. I'm sure glad that uh, you're willing to do this.
1: Well, I appreciate it again, and uh, I appreciate you taking the time once again to, to talk it over
0: and, and uh, take an in interest in it. Okay, you've had some PIC. I did Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative, biblical, and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get
1: involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry,
0: please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.